Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Welcome to the 319th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, I'm not Ben, I'm Paul, and those questions came from me. Uh, Ben, of course, being my son, my partner in the paranormal, a person of whom I am very proud. Before we welcome our very interesting guest, however, it's time, of course, for our weekly contest. Last week's question was... What writer who lived from 1842 to 1910 was one of the first American paranormal researchers? Well, Hector Rodriguez from Miami, Florida, got the correct answer. And the great American psychologist, that answer was, of course, the great American psychologist and philosopher William James. Now, everyone's been complaining lately that the questions have been a little bit too hard, so this one for this week is a little bit easier, I hope. What is it called when the brain generates electricity to the point where it can recharge batteries or otherwise be put to use? Get that right and win a copy of uh, my last book, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny. And uh, there we are. So let's... um, uh, we're, we're getting our guest on the phone right now, and I'll give you an introduction to him as we uh, as we make that connection. Okay. Um, Thomas P. Fusco is an independent researcher who has devoted nearly three decades to investigating the relationship between mind, physics, spirituality, parapsychology, scientific anomalies, and paranormal phenomena with the goal of, quote, uncovering the unifying cosmological framework that has eluded mankind for generations, unquote. He has appeared on numerous radio programs, including this one, and is the author of Behind the Cosmic Veil, A New Vision of Reality, Merging Science, the Spiritual, and the Supernatural. Now, we had Tom on last month, but his thought is so complex and compelling that we barely got started. His website, www.cosmicveil.com. So, Tom Fusco, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thanks for having me back, guys. Okay, we got you. Okay, Ben, take it away. Okay, so we wanted to devote some time on this show to paranormal technologies that you feel could be developed from your theories. Uh, but we'll have to do some review uh, first, or people, including us, might get completely lost. So, um, as simply as possible, can you review your basic theory of the paranormal and how you arrived at it? Well, the model that I have for the paranormal, I would say uh, you could look at it as kind of a three-cornered type picture. Uh, The first one uh, is based on the, what I call the superphysical bending of space. Uh, In other words, the same kind of warps in space that are uh, associated with the uh, force of gravity, uh, but that these uh, bendings are actually occurring from a location outside of space-time. Uh, the second thing is a collection of information that determines the structure and the nature of the physical universe that also resides out of space-time. And that's gone by very many different names throughout history. That in itself is not uh, a new idea. 
And we have lots of uh, observations that indicate to us that such a collection of information were a structured matrix of some sort uh, does exist outside of space-time. And, of course, the uh, third part of it, which uh, you were alluding to in the beginning there, is the mechanism by which this, this information materializes in these superphysical curves of space that result in the types of observations that we see at the sites of paranormal activity. Okay. So, as easiest as you can explain it, what would you say translocation is, or how would you define that? Translocation is a term that I came up with as part of a, uh, a new classification system for the paranormal that would kind of put away some of the old archaic terminologies and bring in things that were a bit more relevant uh, and help crystallize in our minds what's actually going on. Translocation is the uh, movement or the deflection or the displacement of anything physical that is matter or energy by a source, by a cause that originates from outside of space-time. And so uh, we have like a very obvious one uh, that we would uh, think of in levitation or telekinesis, the kind of mind-over-matter type of thing. Uh, but we also find when we look at it that way that things like disembodied voices, uh, strange footsteps where there's nobody making them, and uh, even apparitions all fall under the idea of a translocational phenomenon. Okay. Um, have you actually tested any of this in the field like by actually going out and, and investigating phenomena and, and applying these theories to it? Well, myself personally, no. Uh, my theory, however, does make uh, some physical predictions uh, that are testable. Uh, I have one organization that's working on developing a certain piece of equipment that we've uh, come up with that would certainly test the idea of the bending of space by measuring fluctuations in the gravitational field. But okay. uh, there's also a researcher out there, uh, David Roundtree. Yeah, I've heard of David, yeah. Yes, uh, I'm actually supposed to be talking to him Wednesday in an interview. From what I've been led to understand, he's conducted a couple of very interesting experiments that without realizing it, actually confirms aspects of my theory because my theory would make the kind of predictions that are yielding the results that he's getting. Okay. Um, it is difficult to walk into a case, though, and um, one, can draw, one can prove almost anything depending on one's interpretation. However, let me give you some examples of things that have happened to me in my research. And, of course, I would never dare do what you've done, and that's write a scholarly book, okay? Uh, my books are, are more, well, except for the last one. The last one is more philosophy, but that's what my advanced degree is in, philosophy, so I felt competent to do that, sort of a philosophy of the paranormal. But before that, I wrote what I guess could be called memoirs, and I guess after 42 years of doing this, you can write memoirs. And... Um, uh, but but I would but you you have a lot more courage than I have because you have laid out uh, and rather brilliantly I must say 
theories and and reasons for why you believe what you believe. Um, I I don't agree with all of them, but that's how it goes. Uh, but let let me give you a few examples of things that have happened to me or to Ben and me, and to see what what, what your particular interpretation would be uh, in in line with your thought. Okay, uh, that sounds good. Okay. Uh, November 1974, famous case, uh, very well known. Uh, I always talk about it. I was working with uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are of, uh, you know, various, uh, some somewhat controversial people, but I was in the seminary at the time studying for the priesthood, and I, we were assuming we were dealing with a case where a house was in need of exorcism. It was a poltergeist case, okay? Now, obviously today I have very different ideas, in some cases anyway, on, the, on this matter. But uh, I stood in a kitchen with several police officers and firefighters from the city of Bridgeport, Connecticut, and watched a refrigerator lift off the floor, uh, turn itself around, and put itself back down on the floor again. One of many, many things that occurred. Uh, in, in, in the world of, of translocation and uh, the, the thought of Tom Fusco, what, what was I looking at? Well, here's what makes that kind of an uh, event paranormal. And you know in my book, one of the things that I try to establish is a scientifically reasonable definition for what's paranormal. Oh, yes, and, and you, you personally, I would never do that because I think it's a waste of time. But, but you do it, if, if anybody's done it well, I think you have. But go ahead. Well, we, we certainly, in order to try to reason through any kind of a, a collection of data to understand a pattern, we have to have a, a framework from which to start. We have to have a good, solid reference yeah, point. Yeah, do we? I mean, what do we know? We know nothing. Anyway, well, what about the refrigerator? We'll get well, into this. Well, that's what I'm trying to get to. Okay. All, all right. Uh, the, um, the, what makes that particular event paranormal is the fact that there is no mechanism, either uh, physical or energetic, at present in that location that would be able to generate the energy and focus it in such a way that would cause that refrigerator to do what you're describing. The mechanics for that, the actual device for it, so to speak, simply isn't present in the room. And so according to my model, these types of things are affected by the manipulation of the space that surrounds them. And that manipulation is done from outside of space-time. I'll give you an example. Uh, let's imagine that we have a fabric made of rubber, flexible rubber, and let's say we stretch it across a frame. So when we're looking at it from above, all we see is the featureless fabric of space-time. That's what that would represent. We can't see what's going on behind that or underneath of that rubber membrane. Now let's take a large object like a baseball and place it in the, uh, on that membrane that baseball is going to sink into it and create a pocket, a divot around it in that rubber membrane. This is Einstein's model of space-time in the presence of mass, uh, that we know that it's current right. in the yeah. presence of all mass. So let's say we were going to try to move it in a quote-unquote normal way as opposed to a paranormal way. So... Uh, we could see, let's say, for example, if we took a feather and tried to push it with a feather, uh, there's not enough uh, rigidity in that feather to move it. We would need something more substantial than that. So let's say we take a stick in our hand and we push the ball and it rolls across this rubber membrane 
and the bending of space follows it uh, that surrounds that ball. This would be normal, but we could see, we could measure, we could observe, we could detect the physical mechanism of the hand and the stick and the energy that's being generated by that physical mechanism that can be directed at that ball to move it in a very specific way and in a specific direction. Now, in the paranormal uh, movement, translocation, we would see that ball move by itself without any mechanism pushing it. And we wouldn't be able to detect any kind of a, me of a mechanism that would be pushing it. So what I ask people to imagine is this. Imagine on the other side of that fabric where you can't see that there is a super physical structure on top of the physical that's at work behind that. And let's say, for example, there was some sort of an invisible, unseen hand that was actually able to pull, to grab a little piece of that rubber, pinch it in front of the ball, and pull it down and create this divot, this pocket in space where there's no adjacent physical mass. The same thing that we see when we see all this gravitational lensing out in the universe, and there's 90% more of it than there is physical mass adjacent to it to, to, to have caused it. And so as that's pulling down, what we would see on the outside, or on our side, we would suddenly see the mall move ahead and go into that depression without any physical force applied on our side. And that's kind of a good conceptual representation of what paranormal translocation is. So who lifted the 300-pound refrigerator from outside space-time? Well, when you're talking about who done it, as you know from speaking with me before, I call that part of the criminology part. Exactly, that's right, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I try not to get into saying who done it. My job as the forensist is to tell the criminologist this is the physics of what's going on. How done it? You need to, yeah, how yeah. it was done. Yeah. It's just like the thing uh, if it was a murder victim and somebody got shot in the head with a gun. You could find a perpetrator. You could find the motivation. You could place that person right at that crime scene. But just finding the perpetrator doesn't tell you how he put a hole in somebody's head. You have to also understand the weapon, the gun that was used. And that's the thing that's been lacking in the paranormal field. Okay. All right. I, I, I see where, where you're going here. All right. 1971. I'm standing in the woods of, of northeast Connecticut with six other students and, and an expert in photography. And all of a sudden, we turn around and we hear coming toward us an ox cart or something that sounds like an ox cart. The thing gets closer and closer and closer. You can hear the hoof beats. You can hear the wood wooden wheels. You can hear, you can even hear a guy yelling and a whip cracking. The thing goes right by us, about twenty feet away. We can't see it. And before you answer that, let me say where your your analogy of the of the, well, not analogy Einstein's concept of the curvature of space time comes in, because that's all I could think of when when I would run toward things like this that you'd hear during cases, and you'd run to where you hear them, and they're just over there. You run over there, and they're just over here. And all I could think of was the curvature of you know, space-time, as you say. So, uh, okay, I suppose you're standing there with us, listening to this invisible guy go by. What, what's happening? Well, again, this is where this translocational idea in my work helps us uh, get a little bit of a better handle on it. 
because we normally think uh, from a term translocation, we would think about the refrigerator or a book lying across the room or pots and pans rattling by themselves. But sometimes what we, we don't see is that the physical air molecules, these are, this is the actual medium that carries air waves or, or sound waves through the air, is also a physical object. So by the same token, whatever mechanism lifts the refrigerator off the floor also is pushing the air molecules in such a way to create vibrations in them and the frequency of amplitude of which would result in your particular instance on the sound of this carriage. Now, the very specific types of waves that would cause this specific sound would be a result of the kind of information from which that carriage and the event uh, was comprised of, that that information is partially materializing within a, uh, a, def- a depression within space. And that edge of space-time is actually working like a diaphragm. It vibrates, it oscillates according to the information that's materializing in it. It vibrates the air around it, and it almost acts like in, like in a case of disembodied voices. The fabric of space itself is acting like a set of vocal cords. And then it moves the air, it hits your ears, you hear the sound. It's there. That sound is real and it's physical, but it just doesn't have any local physical cause. Well, how come the sound wouldn't record on, on, on recording devices? That I couldn't answer to you. Okay. That right. I couldn't tell you. Honest answer. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are certain circumstances that would would be specific to that particular event, so to speak. I'm sure that if it was broken down, that we would certainly be able to understand it. Uh, if it was an electromagnetic type of a uh, of a reaction, so to speak, an electromagnetic type of effect, it's possible it could be happening at a frequency and amplitude that could affect the inner ear, but maybe not a microphone. Yeah. I, I can't answer that without knowing more details. All right. Yeah, I can see where you know you really need to get out in the field, and whatever work you can do with anybody would be helpful. Uh, in general, Tom, uh, and again, meaning no disrespect to your work, I mean, what makes you think science, as we as it stands with us today, is good enough to even begin to explain some of these things? Oh, I think that the scientific method is absolutely essential. You got to be kidding! And, yeah, um, and and sometimes people don't distinguish between science itself and scientists. You know, there's a difference between the the agenda of science as a discipline and the agenda of scientists as human beings. Uh, but from a pure scientific point of view, the universe is a place of order. And we have come up with a philosophy, a type of system, by which we can dissect certain uh, aspects of that physical order. The problem that science is missing right now is the correct paradigm. It's just like in the history that I that I talk about when uh, years ago we were trying to analyze earthquakes and volcanoes and mountain formation, and we really didn't understand them. We knew bits and pieces about them. Then someone came up with the idea, the paradigm of continental drift and plate tectonics, 
And the second that paradigm was understood, even a six-year-old now can understand the relationship between earthquakes, volcanoes, and mountain formation. All right. So what does that have to do with the paranormal? Well, because... Oh, I see his point, Ben. Yeah, one of the problems is is that they are looking at it from the wrong paradigm. Physics has taken an approach that the whole universe has a materialistic explanation and that it's self-explanatory. And unfortunately, we've run out of material to explain everything that we see as far as material effect. The paradigm has to shift towards the direction that we have things that are outside of the material. That's well, exactly. Yeah, material effects we see. Yeah, I've been saying that since the late seventies. I mean, we just the, the the scientific materialism, which has pretty much been blown out of the water by quantum mechanics, anyway, uh, really, really uh, is not the answer. And the trouble with the scientific method is that it's based on assumption after assumption after assumption that themselves are based on on scientific materialism. That exactly. is the problem. You're, you're right, Paul. But those assumptions are being made by the fact that they're trying to shoehorn observable data into a faulty paradigm. Exactly, yeah. That's why, yeah. yeah. In other words, if the paradigm was different, the information, the data would fit, and, and you wouldn't have to make assumptions. So one of the, the paradigm shifts that I have is that when we see this, this type of uh, uh, gravitational lensing out in the universe where there's about 90% more gravity then there is adjacent visible mass to account for it. Rather than to make up some make-believe hypothetical fairy tale substance called dark matter... Which I was just going to say dark matter. <laughs> yeah. What I did is just what Einstein did with the Newtonian ether, is just look at it and accept it for what it is. Mm -hmm. Now, when we do that, then we can see a different relationship. We can see that mass is is always associated with the curving of space, but that the curving of space is not always associated with mass. Therefore, the conclusion is, it is not mass that is generating gravity. It is the curvatures of space that generate mass. And that would explain a whole lot of puzzles that science hasn't yet explained. Uh, that's not the way I understand relativity. Um... Anyway, let, let, we have time to just talk about relativity. But all right, well, well let, let's move on. It was, it's kind of fun to have you interpret some of the things that have happened to us. All mm -hmm. right, uh, 2005. Ben and I are going on one of his first cases. It's in a house in, in Connecticut that is what we have come to call the uh, Connecticut's Skinwalker Ranch. I don't know if you're familiar with that case, but all sorts of things are going on that we interpret as multiversal interaction. And uh, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. But in this house in Connecticut, people uh, sit in the living room on one particular day and they see a pair of legs, walking legs, hanging from the ceiling as if somebody else is walking along a surface that did not exist in our world but existed somewhere or somewhere else. And uh, this being one of many, many kinds of things that uh, have occurred in this house. Uh, well, how would you interpret the, the, leg, the leg incident? Well, just as David Bohm said, one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century, that everything that we see in physical reality is what he called explicate order that arose from what he called an implicate order. And that implicate order was that body of information that I was talking about earlier. 
Now, your entire body, everything around you, the set of legs that you're talking about, comprises of information. So all we would need to do is have a mechanism by which that specific information can become at least partially materialized, sufficiently to deflect photons of light so that you can they can deflect those photons in your eyes and you could see it. That's all you would need to explain how such a thing could be. All right. Well, we've already talked about how a large object can be uh, affected. Um, here's, a, here's a question that you yourself suggested. Uh, how come electronic voice phenomena, or EVPs as they're known, are sometimes heard while they're being recorded and sometimes not, just as we were talking about uh, earlier with that ox cart driver or whatever right. it was? Right. Uh, if we can picture that the fabric of space can act almost like a diaphragm, like a set of vocal cords in a way, or a speaker in another way, uh, there's two things that we would expect that surface, that oscillating, vibrating surface, to be able to do. One of the things it's going to do is to agitate the air molecules around it to the frequency of the amplitude of the particular sound so that we actually hear those waves in our ears or recorded on a microphone. But the other thing that the bending of space would do, Paul, is to create an electromagnetic field. And so with that electromagnetic field, if it was also oscillating according to that same frequency and amplitude, you would have that electromagnetic field directly being inducted on the, on the copper coils that are connected to the diaphragm of the recorder. And therefore, the voice wouldn't be being recorded by the diaphragm of the microphone, but by the coils that are connected to the microphone. And just like any type of a radio transmission, it would actually translate it into understandable voices without anybody actually hearing it in the room. Well, that's interesting. So you're saying that no vocal cords would be required to produce the original voice? Correct. All it would need to do is a vibrating uh, fa uh, section of uh, space-time that would be oscillating according to the kind of information that was materializing within it. Okay, that's the first time I've ever heard anyone explain that in any sort of way that might actually make sense. Well, right, this is what's so exciting, Paul, because David Roundtree did the experiment. He's demonstrated this. He's, he's had a recorder inside of a jar that had a vacuum in it so no sound could get to it and recorded EVPs. He's removed the diaphragm from the microphones and recorded EVPs, and he just doesn't simply know the significance of what he has found. Okay, well, we're gonna, on that note, we're going to take a break. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, our Monday Drive Time edition on WON, 1240 AM, and onworldwide.com. Stay with us. Hi, this is Don Brunell inviting you to join me for ON Midday, weekdays from noon to 2, right here on ON 1240 Radio. We've got Gold Cuts guests in our daily super quiz. The Midday Show, right here on ON, local radio at its best. There we go, Mike on, and now a word from our sponsor, as they used to say on radio. Anyway, uh, we wanted to talk to you about the Kindle Fire device, certainly one of the most popular Christmas presents this past year. 
and uh, was the number one most wished for product on Amazon. I guess it still is. Uh, it's only $199 and it's full color. It gives you also well, well over a million publications. Uh, newspapers, books, magazines, apps, games, movies, you name it. And uh, we, always, we always ask our guest, uh, in this case, of course, our, our good friend uh, Tom Fusco. Tom, is your book on Amazon or Amazon Kindle? Well, we're working on trying to get an electronic version. Right now it's the old uh, Dead Tree edition. <laughs> okay. Very good. Well, the uh, same thing with my books, although my books, are, four of mine are on uh, Kindle Fire. Check them out, certainly. Um, uh, Rhode Island, A Genial History, for those of you who have no interest in the paranormal, uh, or are interested in history as well. Uh, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny, Footsteps in the Attic, Faces at the Window, all on Amazon Kindle uh, Fire. And also on the old Amazon Kindle as well. I didn't say old because it's a little bit cheaper if you don't want to go with all the apps and things. But check it out anyway, Staples and at Amazon.com. Amazon Kindle Fire and Amazon Kindle. Check it out. Okay, we're going to come back now with our fascinating guest, Tom Fusco. And uh, Tom, uh, we're, uh, Beyond the Cosmic Veil is the book. And uh, Tom, let's continue our, our conversation, okay? Yes. Uh, all right. Now, where was, we were suggesting uh, interpretations from your point of view of some of our experiences over the years. And to see our, our particular point of view, and I'll, I'll ask you to evaluate that, is as, as any faithful listener knows, that we're dealing with more, less with Einstein and more with Niels Bohr and, and David Deutsch <laughs> in the sense of uh, multiple worlds. We believe that the physical cause of these things is very physical and is right there with us across the electromagnetic boundary of worlds of which we believe we have photographs. And, but again, all our evidence is, is, uh, is pretty much uh, circumstantial. Uh, it's from experience. We've had Fred Allen Wolf on the show, the great physicist, uh, agreeing with us pretty much in most of our interpretations and uh, this sort of thing. So, I mean... In our interpretation, the guy going by with the ox card we couldn't see was actually there. As a matter of fact, I believe he might have been a cousin of mine. I later found out I was related to the people at the <laughs> site. And um, I have actually interacted physically with these things. Not in that case, but there was a case in New Hampshire where, uh, whereby I actually w uh, sort of verbally communicated with a person who was banging around in this particular room. And uh, th there was, there were, there were, I felt electrical pulses when a response would kind of come and uh, I just believe we were he was going about his day nobody's dead here no spirits or anything people are just going about their days on different in the same sharing the same space on the different sides of, of, of electromagnetic world boundaries but that, that's the way I interpreted it what say you well certainly to experience uh, an electromagnetic effect in association with these phenomena would be identical to what my model talks about, that the bending of space indeed produces an electromagnetic field. And it would certainly oscillate and vibrate in frequency and amplitude according to the information that was materializing within that depression of space-time. Uh, the problem with the multiversal explanation for that kind of thing is a couple things. First of all, uh, there is no mechanism that's described by that theory by which energy or even information can bleed across from one side to the other uh, that was that's just one second thing is is that multiverse theory makes no physical predictions that are testable so what excuse me uh, so what well the problem is then it just simply becomes 
a philosophical speculation. What, what elevates something to a theory is the idea that it can make physical predictions that are testable. Well, so I mean, the experience of it uh, might... Yeah. <laughs> Again, if you'd seen the things we've seen and been through what we've been through, uh, I mean, you know, you might uh, find um, the experience uh, might make you uh, wonder if, you know, maybe models and scientific constructs aren't good enough. I mean, that's why I ask it. Do you think they're not good enough? Um, well, okay. Well, uh, and I you know, certainly accept, you know, obviously we disagree on this, but uh, and, and it's interesting that your point of view is, is very academic and mine is is... is 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 not really it's more experiential and as you say philosophical i and that's what my degree is in maybe that's why i feel the way i do and, and interpret the experiences we have the way we do uh, well i if i could interrupt for just a please. second paul i would have to say that at least for the both of us we do have a point in a, of agreement oh, in that we have observable data which does not fit into current scientific models Oh, very true. One yeah, of the things and I though, think that we're in, in perfect agreement. The the challenge is is to derive a model that not only fits the facts but also has some way to verify it. Well, again, uh, I think you're assuming something that we don't assume, and maybe it's not an assumption. Maybe we're the ones who are mistaken here. Well, uh, I just thought to say, Matt, because you said that we were in disagreement, I wanted to clarify what we might be in agreement with. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But uh, the, the epistemology of the whole thing, epistemology, for those who don't know, is, is what you know and how you know it, essentially. And we don't agree. Uh, maybe Ben has different ideas on this. I, I certainly don't, don't trust the five physical senses. And in order to, in, to launch, launch oneself upon the sea of scientific uh, work in, in the, the, our current definition of science, and uh, I think the same would apply to your theories. One has to accept the validity of physical evidence, the validity of, uh, of our perception of physical evidence. And I don't, maybe I'm David Hume here, but I, I don't accept that. I don't think that's good enough. And I think we sort of have to start with, what did Aristotle call it? The tabula rasa, the, the blank slate, which we write upon for what it's worth by our our own observations, which which is, is the same thing, I guess, as trusting your observations. But all, that's all we have. But as far as um, building constructs and, uh, and 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 that sort of thing, I I don't I don't trust it. I, I just I, I wouldn't dare go where you've gone. And perhaps that's me. I understand. Well, you may have dared if you had come up with a paradigm that that finally made sense. Um, in other words. Uh, what I do is I don't question the experiential data, as you're talking about. I accept that as valid. But the problem is to make sense of it. For, for many, 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 many centuries, millennia, people have walked out in the outdoors and have felt the wind against their faces, saw the wind going through the trees, all these types of things, and actually exploited the wind with sailing vessels. And yet, all of that conventional theory or thinking was based on the idea that the wind blows. Now, today, we know the wind doesn't blow. We know that the wind is primarily a movement of air molecules from an area of high pressure to an area of low pressure. The wind is actually pulled along. So here's something where you can have the experiential data and be completely wrong about conclusions from it. But once you find that model... Bang! Everything clicks, falls into place, and finally you can understand it. 
Well, I would be afraid that we're making it fit. Let me point out a few examples from your book here, Tom, of, of, of uh, areas that I, I just, I don't know, I kind of question your reasoning at times. Or, and not your reasoning, your presentation. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, here's a quote from page 135. And again, I, I really enjoyed the book. I had headaches after I would, you know, because it simply means you throw out so many ideas. That, and, and it's, 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 um, Heavy going, I think, you know, but, no but, one has but well worth it. I quite like something quite like this before. Sure. Okay. Uh, here's a quote. But the truth is that particles as tiny as quarks, and just as an aside, quarks are, are supposedly, to use that tired old cliche, the building blocks of, of matter. Okay. But the truth is that particles as tiny as quarks don't follow the same rules as the large solid objects assembled from them, just as the micro-universe of quantum mechanics or I should say quantum physics, behaves quite differently than the macro-universe of relativity, unquote. Now, that, Tom, is neither known nor agreed upon. I don't think there's anyone left who disagrees that the subatomic realm they refer to is fantasy land. But the big disagreement is about how or if this realm echoes, as it were, through the realm of stars, planets, you, me, trees, butterflies, and all this business. And uh, I just had, I just I was a little surprised you didn't point out that there are other points of view on that. And I think, that, for example, Dr. Michio Kaku in his book Parallel Worlds uh, might disagree with that. Dr. Fred Allen Wolf on this very show uh, talked about how uh, that that isn't necessarily the case. David Deutsch from Oxford, the same way. And I was just a little little disturbed that, you know, I think it's dangerous to make sweeping generalizations without pointing out that there may be disagreements about them. So what say you? Well, what I would say is if I uh, wrote a book that contained every other competing theory, no one would ever even be able to carry it to the car. Well, that's probably true, but I, I don't think you should. Maybe it's just, and I'm also a professional editor, so maybe just, I wouldn't have worded it that way as, as if it's true and, and there, it really is not accepted by everyone. I have a, just have a problem with I think if you're going to build a system of reasoning, um, I think you sort of have to admit what the limitations of, of, the, of the thought may be. Well, here's, here's where I would argue it on, on as far as uh, reasonable grounds. First of all, these scientists that you're talking about are still laboring under what I call the false paradigm that everything that we observe in the universe has a material explanation. And this is the roots of the multiverse concept. The fact that if we can't find the material within our own universe, we'll just dream up another universe. And then we'll borrow the material from them uh, from that universe, and suddenly we have the material. I find it very almost amusing that people who are spiritually oriented have been adopting this multiverse concept. The whole premise behind is to completely eliminate every possibility of anything that's spiritual. The other aspect of it is they're laboring under a false assumption that gravity is A, an attractive force, B, that it's actually a physical force, and C, it's propagated by a particle that propagates itself as a wave, the graviton and yeah. the gravity wave. Well, there is evidence for these things. There is no evidence for the existence of a graviton. That No, that's not for gravitons, right. It's, it's, it's circumstantial. It's like, I suppose, as your analogy to uh, forensics, uh, there are times one has to extrapolate, but I see your point. I see your point, Tom. So they're laboring under the idea that there's such a thing of a gra- as a graviton. For example, we've heard a lot in the last couple decades about string theory. 
Oh yeah. Well, but that, that that whole that's a construct meant to you know clear up the disagreements between uh, Newtonian physics and quantum physics. Right. And and what is the problem? What is the what is the uh, uh, the stumbling block all the time is gravity. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. What most people aren't aren't aware of in in, in string theory. Either the standard string theory of 11 dimensions or the super string theory of 26 dimensions, they are all hinged upon the existence of a graviton. If you eliminate the graviton, which my model does, then string theory collapses. It becomes a fantasy. Hmm. Uh, I Well, we could debate that, but I, I don't know. I wanted to get into one. You used the magic word spirituality. Okay. And we, we agree with you 100% on that, that. That cannot be divorced from any discussion of this kind. However, I, I have a little problem with how you use the Bible. And like everybody uses the Bible. Maybe it's my theological training. I don't know. Um, could you explain how, just briefly how you bring, if you can explain it brief, how you bring the Bible into your whole paradigm? Well, the human brain is a arena, so to speak, in which what I say, superphysical information, can be materialized. Uh, if we are to accept the evidence of remote viewing and telepathy, we have information that originally was connected to a physical location or originally connected to the electrochemical components of thought, and it's been separated from those physical constituents, broadcast to another mind, and then materialized in that mind. So that when we look at it that way and we understand, we can understand that certain facts, certain understandings can come strictly through inspiration. So what I did was I went to the Bible and read it and took it exactly for what it said, not the church traditions that were built afterwards with the fairy tales like the Lucifer myth and all that, but to take it exactly for what it says and then see what kind of a structure that that forms, what kind of cosmology. And the results have been absolutely amazing. Well, if I had a dollar for every person in history who took the Bible for, quote, what it says, I wouldn't have to work here. Uh, yeah, but nobody has come up from the Bible with a theory of light, time dilation, the dual nature of light, and also gravity, and is able to derive a theory from it that makes testable physical predictions. Well, how do you know what the Bible actually says? I mean, we don't have the original words, if if that matters. What translation did you use of the 32 in English that I'm aware of, all of which are terrible? Well, I'm I'm going by what I have in front of me, which is English translations cross-referencing through uh, four different ones in a parallel Bible. Um, I'm using the kind of translations that seek to give the most uh, literal translation possible into the English language. But bear, bear in mind, whatever type of haziness that can occur through translation over centuries, there is certainly sufficient substance left in it for me to draw these conclusions. And when I draw these conclusions and then get accurate models from them that describe observable phenomena and also make physical predictions, well, that blurry mist must have been pretty darn good, huh? Well, I mean, you say you draw conclusions from observable phenomena, but you haven't been out observing any phenomena. Oh, uh, what did Einstein do? Let me ask you this, Paul. What did Einstein do? 
did he ever conduct any experiment? Did he ever conduct any experiment? Well, he didn't have any cyclotrons in his time, no. Did he conduct any experiments in his theorizing at all? Well, no, but he didn't use Charles Dickens' novels or the Bible either, Tom. <laughs> no, he didn't. But he did use a particular type of theistic principle, that there was a greater order to the universe that was more than the sum total of his parts. Well, that's why he didn't like quantum physics, but he didn't deny it either. He didn't well, like he it. said that God didn't roll dice. He didn't deny the observations. He just denied the fact that that's just the way the universe is without having a deeper underlying explanation to it. Well, he also you know, was open-minded enough that he had peer review. See, the trouble with you and me, and I'm not just, I'm not, you know, this is not a personal attack because it applies to me too. We don't have peer review in this field unless, unless we have degrees after our names. And but, yeah, uh, I, I have no... something, Paul, again, you're talking about some misconceptions that are common in the field but are, are, are completely unreasonable. And I'll explain to you what I mean. First of all, I gave the example. You asked me, how can I do this without uh, making any observa observations or experiments myself? I answered that. The greatest mind that ever lived did the same thing. As far as peer review, that has to do with scientific findings. If you want to see scientific theory that's published all the time without peer review, take a look at any scientific American. Well, that's a popular magazine, but I, I, no, I get your point. I get your point. But yeah, I mean, you're making me look like something that I'm not. Well, I, I, the first thing I said was I'm the same. I'm in the same boat. Well, I, I have to differ with you, Paul. I'm in a different boat than you are. Okay. Well, you certainly see yourself as in a different boat. I'm you know, not I just, the only one. I, I would never. I wouldn't. I wouldn't presume to compare myself with Einstein or my methods. But I mean, that you know, it's up to you. You know, maybe you're the most brilliant guy in the paranormal. I don't know. But getting back to the Bible, Tom, uh, I, I just, I just have an issue, and, and it's not just you. Everybody seems to do it. They take it and they turn it into what they want it to be. And I just, and we don't even know what it says. I mean, the original translations were, uh, you know, we don't even know what they were. I mean, I've seen a actual Bible documents with scribes writing uh, on the side. Why did you, to the previous scribe, why did you change the original? And uh, we, we just, it's a mess. It's a terrible mess. And I just, I, I as you say, if the fuzziness may be there, but I just don't know if it's adequate for, for doing what you've done with it. I mean, just speaking as one who studied it. It doesn't well, seem like that's what it's apparently for. It was it was adequate to get what I've gotten out of it, and the results have been nothing short of remarkable. This has been being acclaimed by a number of people in this field that have heard me and have talked to as hosts in the in interviews. Um, so whatever your ambiguity is that you're talking about, enough of a signal gets through that static in order to get something tangible out of it. And I did want to ask you that. Thanks for bringing it up. Uh, what, uh, what, what reaction is your work receiving? The, and, the people are welcoming it. I'm getting people that are having gestalts while they're talking to me on the, uh, on the telephone. Uh, suddenly everything that they've seen in these paranormal investigations is beginning to make sense. Well, I get the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the difference is, is that, uh, well, I don't know. It, it's starting to sound a little bit like a competition here, Paul. Well, no, I'm just try trying to get, have an honest discussion. Okay, all right. Well, uh, let me be honest. The ones that hate my work 
are the fanatically atheistic and the fanatically religious. People, n neither of whom I respect either. Okay. But everyone else has been very open to it except those who are so entrenched in a model that they already believe in that this poses direct challenges to it. Well, I mean, Tom, you, you, you can't, with any sort of intellectual honesty, take everything, every criticism as a personal attack. Oh, I don't, I don't take it as a personal attack. You ask me how people are responding to it. Oh, sure, okay. Well, and what, I, what people? I, I mean, do you, you have that. the, do you have the American Parapsychological Association, uh, praising it? Or, we, you know, I send them stuff, they pay no attention whatsoever. I mean, what, I mean, who is praising it? Internet, you know, uh, radio people who don't know anything anyway? I mean, who, who is, who is, uh, is praising it? Oh my, I had a scientist on a show a couple weeks ago that was extremely impressed. Excellent. I have to go back and, and, and check it out, you know, uh, to tell you exactly who it was. But uh, I'd have to go back into, into my logs here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the thing is, what I've done, and again, I can't stress this enough, my theory makes physical predictions that are scientifically testable. And apparently some of those predictions have already been tested successfully. Okay, great. Um, it also our, makes other predictions. Like when we look out at the outer edges of the universe, we are actually going to see a reduction in the percentage of the curvature of space to visible mass. We're also going to find out that if we can go that far back in time, uh, we can find out that the amount, the total amount of gravity in the universe was less in earlier times than it is now. Okay. And boy, that's something that none of your metaphysical things can do. All right. Well, well uh, uh, just before we're burning up the hour, Ben, did you have any questions? I, I've been monopolizing the discussion here with Tom. So, um, actually, yeah, I did. I had one like forever. I just remembered it now. Okay, so you've definitely had mediums talk to you, correct? Mediums. Yeah. How do you, How do you feel about them? Mediums. Yeah. Like, what do like I mediums. feel about them? Yeah. I feel that that's another terminology that carries an awful lot of baggage and is also inaccurate in most cases. My understanding of a medium is someone who sits with the living and communicates directly with someone that is dead or on the other side or whatever with them. Most of the sensitives that go into paranormal sites for investigations, in my mind, don't perform as a spiritual medium, quote-unquote, or a psychic medium. Yeah, well, that's yeah. We we have very few of those on the show because I don't really take them very seriously. Although, again, you know, there are, there are illustrations of various principles that might be um, illustrated by what they do. Anyway, Tom, I want to give you a chance to talk to just uh, tell us again the title of the book, the website, and where people can get the book. Uh, the title of the book is "Behind the Cosmic Veil." Uh, this is the one that's been causing all the commotion, and you can find everything about it. And order the book, read related articles at www.cosmicveil.com. Okay. And what are you working on next? Uh, a book called The Multiverse Conspiracy. The Multiverse Conspiracy, dedicated to us, I hope. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll, uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when it comes out, you'll be able to read it. Okay. Well, maybe we'll have you back. When, when do you expect to finish it? Uh, that I don't know. Okay. 
It depends on how fast I can get it done. Okay, great. Well, Tom, great discussion, uh, lively, and thank you for being with us again, and uh, keep in touch. Okay, Paul, my pleasure. Okay, take care now. All right, very good. Tom Fusco, everybody, behind the Cosmic Veil and CosmicVeilVeil.com. Interesting discussion. Interesting guy. Okay. All right. We're going to do, uh, maybe we'll get time for one. Yeah, we do. Email here. Okay. How many? Thank you, Mr. Producer. Ben is welcome being our producer here today. Okay. Here's, um, uh oh, a multiverse question. This is from WBBay or BB in, uh, you picked the longest one out of all of them. No, it's not long at all. Oh. Uh, from Springfield, Illinois and W writes. I, I thought it had staple in it, so I assumed it was really long. Okay, so um, listening to you on Coast to Coast and on your own show, and I've been fascinated by your predictions for the period from now until 2016 and after, and you insist that you have not received this information from quote-unquote spirit guides, benign aliens, or enlightened masters, but I can remember you giving specific examples of multiverse neighbors who you have received them from. Can you give any specific examples? All right. I, we've got some terminology problems here, I think. Uh, this goes back to this famous coast-to-coast appearance we were uh, involved with in May 16th, I believe, of um, 2011. Yeah. And it, we sort of came clean on a number of things that we felt uh, were going to happen uh, between the 2012-2016 periods. They're not predictions. These are impressions and opinions. And the opinions came not from... You know, cosmic communication that we have with anybody or anything like that. But we do in the course of our paranormal work, which we refer to as a cosmic journey, um, run into uh, through meditation, through prayer, through dreams in, in waking life, all of which are um, forms of consciousness, what we believe are neighbors, so to speak, in the parallel uh, worlds around us that our friend Tom might disagree with are there or not, but uh, they seem to be perfectly uh, workable for us. And there seems to be a concern in the multiversal neighborhood, shall we say? These are these are people and sometimes uh, various forms of life that are that are not all that different from us in many ways. Sometimes they are, but there is a concern about the future, and this is essentially what this is is. Um, is talking about. Um, I don't think we have time to give the specific examples. I guess we'll have to come back to this. Maybe it was long, right? You were right, Ben. Yeah, I told you. <laughs> but uh, essentially, we try try to keep our feet on the ground. We didn't want to talk about this because I've spent 40 years trying to build uh, a, a reputation for uh, some sort of feet-on-the-ground approach to a subject where that's not all that easy to do. So uh, we'll get more into this uh, for because there are lots of questions about it and all sorts of things like this uh, to discuss when we have more time. Okay, well, we certainly want to thank our producer, who in this case was Ben today. And uh, we, um, uh, right here on uh, onworldwide.com uh, and WON 1240 AM. And uh, you can come back a week from tonight, on February 20th, when we'll welcome a man named Jerry Weave Warner, I should say, Jerry Warner, who has the knack of befriending and photographing life forms from parallel worlds, such as the kind we're just describing. This isn't just us. People are writing to us from all over the world saying they're having the same experiences. Uh, anyway, I also want our regular CBS radio edition, Sunday, February 19th in Boston, Pittsburgh, Seattle, and Detroit. We'll welcome journalists uh, Linda Moulton-Howe and Larry Larry Lowe 
for a look at these ultra-world sounds, ultra-strange sounds, I should say, that are being reported from all over the world lately. And we'll leave you with a quick quote from Albert Einstein. A man should look for what is and not for what he thinks should be. So thanks for sailing with us on our great cosmic journey, and we will see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.